Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Journalist Laura Meckler of the Washington Post discusses her book, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equality. Beginning with a historical overview of the Cleveland suburb and its uncanny ability to propel itself into the national spotlight, Ms. Meckler discusses how the suburb fought segregation and racial covenants to become one of the first integrated communities in Northeast Ohio. The desegregation of Shaker schools has been one of success and challenge, but through the story of busing to classroom leveling, Shaker has come together to work toward the common goal of uplift and opportunity for all. Laura Meckler is a national education writer at the Washington Post, where she covers news, politics, and people shaping America's schools. This is her first book and was published in 2023. Here's our discussion from January 8th, 2024. Laura Meckler. I'm a staff writer for the Washington Post and author of Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equity. Well, thank you for joining us. And I would love for you to begin by telling us why Shaker Heights, why a book about Shaker Heights, and why you are about a book about Shaker Heights. Yes, good questions. Well, those are all kind of wrapped up together. Um, I'm from Shaker Heights. I um, lived there from birth until I left for college. And my, um, as my family, still a family who lived there. So I've been coming back to the community even after I moved away on a regular basis. So I feel very, um, have a, it's very much home for me. Um, that's a place that matters to me. Um, the story of Shaker Heights, which I always knew growing up, is just a fascinating one. In fact, far more fascinating than I ever knew, to be honest. Um, And specifically its relationship, the community's long-term relationship with issues of race. And I always knew about Shaker's work on integration, both in housing and in schools. Um, But then as, uh, and then I became a reporter. And at the time when I first um, had the idea of writing about Shaker Heights uh, was when I was working at the Wall Street Journal and I was covering changing American demographics. And I was thinking about race in America and the idea sort of came to me, well, would it be, there, is there a story about my hometown here to write? Um, at the time, there was a new superintendent who had arrived who was really putting the achievement gap and questions of equity front and center. And I started looking more carefully at data around the achievement issues um, by race in Shaker, which are very troubling, the, the, you know, big gaps and, you know, just asking a fundamental question of, you know, well, why is this? You know, why, why in a community that, has prided itself on, you know, being really honest and really um, progressive on questions of race for so, so many years. You know, why do we still have these results? So that's where it started. Um, why write a book about Shaker Heights? I mean, there's been actually a lot written about Shaker Heights. I mean, it's crazy how much journalism has been done about Shaker. In fact, I found about a dozen stories in the New York Times alone going back to the 60s, standalone stories about Shaker Heights, which is 
I would say a lot for a small suburb of Cleveland to be in the New York Times. Um, you know, there's been stories in everywhere from Reader's Digest to Newsweek to um, the Washington Post to all just um, a special on ABC News. There's been a lot done on Shaker. There's also been a lot of academic work done on Shaker, but nobody had ever written a book about it that was intended for the general public. So I wrote um, my my initial thinking about whether there was a newspaper story eventually developed into a newspaper story. By the time I wrote it, I was actually working here at the Washington Post where I cover national education issues. So it was really right in my bailiwick um, once again. And um, when I finished, you know, often when I um, finish a big story, you're kind of ready to move on to something else. But in this case, I felt like there was so much more to say and so much more I wanted to say. And I felt that my combination of my um, journalism skills, uh, the work I had already done on reporting in the community, and the just frankly, my um, my personal feelings of really caring about the place kind of came together in a way that would make me the right person um, to write a book. But, you know, th this is a story that's been told by many people and will continue to be told by people. And I, I hardly expect this is the last word. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think that you uh, touched on something in that answer, which is um, there's this tension in Shaker Heights, I believe, and in a lot of communities like it that are that is progressive on race, but at the same time regressive on race. So even at the beginning, I'm thinking of the um, how Shaker was founded with the racial contracts and the and this kind of stuff, and how the community pushed back against it in spite of itself and social norms. So maybe you could talk a little bit about where Shaker started and how it was a planned community that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're that question kind of melds, mixes up a few things all at once, but I, I can kind of unpack it. Um, there's no doubt that the founding, well, well, well I should say the, the, um, the very first uh, people who settled Shaker Heights were the Shakers, which was a religious sect, and they actually were quite progressive on race. They were really out to build a utopia and they were they they did a lot. They welcomed black members into their um, community, which was this is where, you know, in the mid 1800s. So this is hardly the norm. Um, and so actually they were quite progressive as it happens, but they they died out. They um, they believed in celibacy, which, you know, was is not a great um, recipe for um, uh, keeping a small sect going. Um, but so, you know, keep that in mind if you're ever considering um, starting a religious sect. Um, in any case, the people who actually developed Shaker into the community we know it today are the Van Swergen brothers. And it's very fair to say they were not interested in racial equity of any sort. Um, it was meant to be an exclusive community for wealthy white Clevelanders, you know, full stop. Um and that's that's how they developed it. And that's how it was for for several decades. Um, there were, as you alluded to, covenants on the deeds um, that were meant to keep people out. Now, unlike other communities where they actually specified who was to be kept out, in this case, the way they were worded was that the Van Swergen company had to um, give you permission to who you were going to sell to. And there was a way to override that. You had to get a majority of your of your closer neighbors to sign a petition. But it was really quite extraordinary that they were that they exercised that kind of control to keep out so-called undesirables, which I always, you know, find quite such a pleasant term to describe our our fellow human beings. Um in any case, that's how it went. Um but and and it was quite effective. 
you know, these covenants and the attitudes. And there were a few black families who managed to get in in the 20s and and they were they were pushed out. Um, so but then we the story progresses to the 50s, the mid 50s, when the first families moved in successfully into the Ludlow community, which is near Shaker Square. Um, on the border between Cleveland and Shaker and into the Shaker Heights School District. In fact, the first families were actually in the city of Cleveland. And, you know, the covenants uh, were in some cases not on those particular properties. In some cases they were there and they were not enforced. Um, but the real and, and by then, by the mid 50s, these covenants really were losing their power to keep people out. They were, you know, eventually um you know, the, the, I believe in 1948, they were actually declared unconstitutional. So, you know, the, these things were not, um, they were they, they were on, on their way um, into the history books. Um, but what really was remarkable was the story, and I think this is really in many ways the origin story of Shaker Heights, of the modern story of race and Shaker, is what happened in Ludlow, where a group of white and black residents came together to try to um, stem the white flight that was underway and that was so common in so many communities in this country and try to um, create community together. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of where I wanted to go next was the Ludlow community and Moreland and how those two communities developed. And it also is, I like how you said that the origin story because it seems like there's a lot of um, community and resident groups that come together and really do forge kind of a new way forward. And is that common in a lot of places or was that unique to Shaker in that the citizen yeah. groups? Yeah, I don't think it was common at all. I don't know if it was unique. I think there were other places that also tried this, but it, that was definitely the exception for sure. And then let's jump to um, the story of busing in Cleveland is pretty well documented and pretty well known, but in Shaker, there was a twist to it and it was voluntary and which I found incredibly uh, fascinating and how that kind of unfolded. So if you could tell yeah. us that, that'd be great. Sure. Well, of course, Brown versus Board of Education is handed down in 1954 and, and widely ignored. Um, and the communities that did, in fact, integrate their schools, desegregate their schools, did so under court order, um, often with an enormous amount of pushback inside the community, so in some cases, violent pushback. Um, the city of Cleveland itself was sued to desegregate its schools, as you alluded to. It was fought hard through the 70s um, until they were essentially forced to do so. And the story was, in fact, different in Shaker Heights. In Shaker Heights, in the mid-60s, a new superintendent arrived named Jack Lawson, and he um, decided that, you know, this was not okay. The first thing he did was there were two junior highs, and they were out of balance racially. One was um, had was disproportionately Black, and one was disproportionately white, given the demographics of the district as a whole. And he redrew the boundaries to balance those two schools. And that went pretty well. So then he turned his attention to the elementary schools. There was one elementary school called Moreland that um, whose students were 88% of them were black. And there were many elementary schools that had just a handful of black students or in, I think in one case, none at all. And so he set out, this is now, we're now in, nine, as he's starting to develop this plan, it's the late sixties. And he said, you know, this is not okay. And there was already, there was so much conversation about how, how um, segregation is not good for kids. And um, so he proposed a plan 
Um, and his initial plan was actually that the kids from Moreland would be bused to the majority white schools. Um, and, and then the space at Moreland would be used for something else. And, he, um, and it wouldn't really be, it was voluntary on part of the district. There was no lawsuit, but not so much voluntary on the part of those families. The, the families in, in Moreland, in fact, really pushed back against this. They said they didn't want a one-way busing plan. And he was actually kind of ready to ignore that, to be perfectly honest. And then, um, which was something that part of the history, which I had not been familiar with before I did the research for this book. And then something again, I think fairly extraordinary happened, which was the white family's parents in Shaker said, yeah, this isn't fair. Why is this a one-way program? I mean, the white schools were just as segregated as that one majority black school was, if not more so. And so they got together a petition, a committee for cro voluntary cross um, uh, cross enrollment, I think it was called something to that effect. And they said, not only do we want this to be a two-way busing plan, but we volunteer our own kids to be part of it. And ultimately, that's what was adopted, was it was voluntary on the part of the district, and it was voluntary on part of the parents, both Black and white, um, uh, for busing kids into and out of Moreland. Yeah, and, and that was, um, I also was struck by something that is a tension in the book. I guess it's not a tension, but it's a thread in the book in which uh, the Black families react to this in a way that was surprising to me as well, um, because there's a, the two-way street, right, is what you were talking about. And then this is something that comes up a time and time again throughout the story. Um, black reaction isn't always what we would expect it to be, I suppose. Yeah, although in that case, I'm not sure it's all that surprising. Everyone wants a neighborhood school. I mean, is it surprising that, or do we expect that Black families would be like, oh, thank you. We get to leave our school and go across town. Nobody nobody wants that. You know, it isn't, so I don't actually think that one is all that surprising. But I do agree with you more broadly that people's reactions and feelings about things are not always what we expect. And sometimes assumptions are made and they're not always accurate. I would like to um, kind of jump ahead a little bit in the uh, story of Shaker Schools to um, this, because I think busing pinpoints something that is, um, that continues today, which was the segregation of the schools. And it seems like Shaker struggles a lot with, even though they're integrated, even though this is an integrated community, there's still this level of segregation that exists. And I wish, um, I mean, it's such a complicated story, but I, I would really like to hear your thoughts on how that kind of plays itself out as we move forward through the past busing into kind of how the school system develops. Yes. Well, I think um, the one first thing we should explain is that this busing plan that was implemented in 1970, you know, sort of grew and um, it was this voluntary program for about 17 years, it turned out to be, with um, magnet schools and they made all sorts of efforts to try to attract people to voluntarily bus their kids, really wasn't enough to truly balance the schools. They ultimately, through a school consolidation program, um, closed four of the nine elementary schools and then redrew the boundaries so that every elementary school was um, racially balanced and racially integrated. And that happened in 1987. And the schools in Shaker have been integrated 
desegregated ever since. So that commitment has remained. If you walk into any school building in Shaker Heights today, you will see a, a healthy mix of kids um, that more or less reflects this, the community as a, as a whole. Um, so that's a real success. And that's something that you don't see in much of America. But as you said, there's, there is segregation within that. And most importantly, most prominently, um, in the classes. And that has to do with the academic leveling system that's been in place, started in the 50s and has grown over time and grown to the point where until a few years ago, starting in formally in the fifth grade, kids are being separated into enriched and regular uh, English and math. And these um, tracks that they're on, which are not, you know, technically you can change over the years, but as a matter of course, it doesn't really happen. Um, people tend to stay on the track that they start on, um, become, uh, are, are heavily racially segregated with the upper levels, whether it be a fifth grade enrichment class or an advanced class in middle school or an honors class in high school or an AP class in high school, whatever the case may be, it, they, are, they have been um, heavily, heavily racialized and where the upper classes, upper level classes are um, uh, overwhelmingly white and the lower level and regular level classes are disproportionately black. And this has been a problem for a very, very long time. It's been pointed out by everybody by by uh the urban league had a big report in 1980 the shaker rate the high school paper has written about it there's been media coverage um more broadly about it um you know there has the office for civil rights of the department of education has investigated around this this is not a new problem it's very well known and there's been a variety of ways that they've essentially over the years tried to encourage more black kids to take upper level classes but at the same time there is a lot of systemic racism that unknowing, um, no doubt, on the part of the people involved, but which are pushing kids into these um, into these levels. And um, that has to do with everything from just sort of the implicit biases of the teachers and the counselors to what parents ask for. You know, there are a lot of white parents who will say like they want their kids in the upper level and they will push for that. Um, whereas you don't have that doesn't happen in the same way among um, black parents who may in some are in general as a group um, have lower incomes and um, may not feel the same level of confidence um, of going in and saying, well, I don't you might think my kid belongs here, but I think they belong there. Some have done that for sure, but not 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 most. So um, there's been a lot of conversation about that fact. And it's, it's a big theme in the book. Um, of how this developed over the years. Um, but there was a big development on this front just three years ago in fall 2020. Um, this is in the middle of the pandemic. I don't know when people are going to be watching this video. Hopefully they don't remember what the pandemic means by then, but um, they probably do, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the school's you know, shut down in the spring of 2020. And as they were preparing to try to reopen in that fall of 2020, and it became a, a, a whole year of in and out of school and hybrid classes and some kids in and some kids out. And it was a, there was a lot of chaos and, and confusion. Um, the superintendent who was interested in dismantling or at least um, um, uh, partially dismantling this, this tracking system um, decided to do it then. Um, and essentially mix kids together 
of mixed abilities in the same classes, starting basically in fifth grade when the system began up through the early level, the early years of high school. Um, now the advanced placement classes, the international baccalaureate special classes, the high school are still separate classes, but short of that, the classes um, have been generally mixed. So it was a, a difficult time for a change like that, but the change was in fact made. And um, have you gotten any information on how that change a was accepted or pushed back against, and then B how successful it's been since. Yeah. I know it's very early days still, but it, there's probably yeah, some yeah. Um, on the successful since it's hard to know because um, school uh, scores, um, student test scores fell so precipitously over the course of the pandemic and the immediate aftermath that's hard to untangle you know, what we're seeing in the numbers, how much of it's COVID and how much of it is detracking. So, so that makes it tough to measure. Um, the school district does have some preliminary data that they feel good about that shows there is a rising number, specifically eighth grade algebra um, competency um, test results that show the number of black students who are showing competency in algebra one, which is now taught in eighth grade to all kids. Algebra is normally a ninth grade class. So they moved everybody into algebra in eighth grade. Um, so there is a rising number of kids who are passing and doing well enough into that class uh, to, to, to meet the requirements. So that is that is a positive. Um, there are a rising number of Black kids in AP classes, although it's not really clear if that is related to the detracking. So it really is a um, it's hard to unpack. In terms of the response, it's really been mixed. Some people were like, it's about time. Thank God. Some people were like, I like the idea. I think this is where we need to head. How are you doing it? They want reassurance about the fact that teachers will be trained and that, that it's being done well. Um, and then there are some people who have real substantive concerns about whether, especially high achieving parents who have high achieving kids, whether their kids will be served as well. So it's a real mix. Yeah, and I, I would like to kind of... Um kind of end on one of the questions that you ask right at the end of the book. And it's um, it's the first one you, you ask of yourself, was this a story of power of white privilege and systemic racism, always finding a way to come out on top? And I would like you to speak on Shaker in general, but also if you could, since you cover education, kind of nationally, where are we? And where would you situate Shaker in the national conversation of education? I mean, I think Shaker is still uh, out in front in a lot of ways on this, because in this case, I think the detracking is a good example. Even though there were complaints from some of the people with the most privilege in the community, the program is still is still happening. You know, it didn't that didn't didn't, in fact, stop it. So, um, you know, again, you you can be critical of how they did it. And, and I actually am critical about how they did it. But the truth is they have co stayed committed to it as of certainly as of this date. And I see no um, sign of backtracking. So I do think that in this, this is a good example of Shaker's ongoing commitment. And I, and that is really where I come out at the end of the day on the, the Shaker story overall, which is that they have not uh, you know, it's it's not it's not a place full of magic beans. They have not solved all the problems. You know, this isn't a, this isn't a, a book with a like a thirty day juice cleanse. You know, follow these steps and and you'll lose twenty pounds. It, it doesn't work that way. It but it is a story of of ongoing um, efforts and ongoing commitment. And I think that we do see that um, to this day. 
um, it's a push and pull. You know, there isn't, there are some ideas that have been put forward through an equity lens that did get pushed back. Like I, one example that I talk about near the end of the book is there was a proposal for a one centralized elementary school instead of the five that are um, in individual neighborhoods. The argument was this would be more equitable. Everybody would be bused instead of just some kids being bused. On the other hand, people like neighborhood schools, you know, and, and I understand that too. So was that an example of people of privilege getting their way? you could argue that it was. Um, similarly, there was a proposal to close one school and reopen another as part of a facilities plan. And um, the one that was going to be reopened was in a majority black neighborhood. And the one that was going to be closed was in a majority, an existing school in the uh, majority white neighborhood. So that, that, that was scuttled. So that was maybe an example of people who have privilege getting their way. Um, on the other hand, that school that I mentioned that isn't reopening, but it is actually going to reopen for a pre-K program. So, you know, it's like sometimes it's three steps forward, one step back, you know, that this stuff is not easy. And it's not um, one of the themes throughout the book is that there aren't really like villains and heroes, but just, you know, a lot of people operating in what I call the messy middle, you know, they're making progress and they're making mistakes. And, um, but but um, I find I find inspiration in the pursuit. As for how this looks in other communities, um, I don't think that other communities are most other communities are having these conversations. We have to keep in mind also not all communities even have the kind of diversity, um, racial or economic. We haven't really talked about economic diversity, but Shaker has that too. Um, that you have. I mean, we you look at like a place like. Cleveland Heights, which was for a long time very similar to Shaker, but is the school district is now, and and um, I don't know all the reasons why, but the white percentage of kids in the schools is much lower than it is in Shaker and much lower than it used to be. Why why is that? Like that's somebody else's book, but um, but it is a um, but it is a sign of like not every school district has the same challenges or the same opportunities for these kind of um, pursuing these kinds of equitable policies. But um, again, not about Cleveland Heights, but more broadly, when we're looking around the country, um, I think there are places that are are striving towards these things. And there are also places that are actively resisting them. Um, if we look at what's happening in laws that are passed in certain conservative states against um, diversity and equity initiatives, barring them, restricting how race can be talked about in the classroom, you, you see a backlash to a lot of this stuff too. So um, in some places in the country, we don't don't just have this not happening, but you have an, act, an active backlash against it. Thanks for listening to the Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.